When I look in the mirror, I don't see wrinkles. When I look in the mirror, I see hair on my head, not my shoulder. And hello, hello, hello. This is Generation Bold, and this is Adrian Berg, and this is the Fountain of Truth About Aging. And today we are going to be dealing with a topic we've dealt with many times, and that is Alzheimer's, what is happening with regard to it. But we're going to be dealing with it in a very different way, directly from the folks at the NIH, National Institute uh, on Aging, NI, uh, National Institute on Health as well, and explain the two and how they work together to create the trials that bring to you the solutions. And uh, in order to do that, we're going to have somebody who is really doing it right now, somebody who is at the head uh, of the the pharmacological issues when it deals with Alzheimer's. Now, in the past, we've had folks who really are doing the research uh, privately that are looking at uh, Alzheimer's almost as a business. And we've looked at that to see how we can criticize it, and also how we can support it, and what it's going to mean to us as caregivers and folks who might be subject to this devastating disease. We've also spoken with caregivers and caregiver organizations with regard to memory care and what's going on right now in some of the um, residential facilities that we talk about all the time. But this may be the first time that we're really speaking to a doctor who is on the front line of doing the research and making it happen. Her name is Lori Ryan, Dr. Lori Ryan, and uh, she is the chief of the Dementias of Aging Branch, Division of Neuroscience over at the National Institute uh, on Aging, NIA. And we will discuss this and how it dovetails with the NIH. We've been speaking with so many doctors who are involved in both, and I'm not sure the public quite knows the difference of the umbrella organizations and the centers underneath the NIH. So thank you, Dr. Ryan, for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start with that. I just want to set the stage. Uh, When you look at your email address, you see that it is NIH.gov, and there is indeed a website that I go to all the time, with a lot of information from the National Institute on Health. Just explain to us what the NIH is. Absolutely. So the National Institutes of Health is really the umbrella organization for the the federal government's research on all types of health for from infants to uh, adolescents to older adults across the board. And the NIH is made up of 27 different institutes and centers One of those is the National Institute on Aging, which is what I work for, and we focus on diseases um, of aging and also healthy aging. So I have actually heard uh, from people from the NIH, leaders of the NIH, that quite a bit of money is being focused on uh, and put into research on Alzheimer's specifically for the NIA because it's become such a devastation to us. And with regard to that, uh, before we go on, because we're going to delve deeply into what's going on with Alzheimer's, in addition to that issue of aging, what other issues of aging are in the forefront right now? Well, obviously, um, Alzheimer's is, you know, of course, now we have COVID-19, which, as we know, is is also an emerging issue that we know 
has a devastating effects on, on older adults. So that obviously is happening right now. That's just a new, a new event or new, new situation. Um, and, but Alzheimer's is really the largest probably issue facing the aging population because it is such a devastating disease. Um, it's actually not just a disease, it's a syndrome, and it causes loss of cognitive functioning and ultimately requires the individual to have full-time care uh, by the end of, of the, the end stage of the disease. So Alzheimer's, I would say, ha has been obviously the number one largest, and which is why you've seen Congress, I think, respond and give ad many additional funds, and we're very grateful that we've been able to have this additional funding to really research, you know, ways to treat and prevent Alzheimer's disease, but also how to ca help caregivers, how to take care of caregivers because it's difficult for them. So it's, it's really across the board. It has been, I would say, Alzheimer's has been the number one. Of course, now we have this emerging issue of, of COVID-19. And, you know, one of the things we've learned from many of the uh, folks who've been on the show is that of all the issues of self-care for caregivers, the, the spouses, the children, the loved ones, the people uh, who have some sort of chronic disease, their mental state is worse when that chronic disease is Alzheimer's because they are slowly losing their connection to the person as opposed to a person who's cognitively fit but has some physical chronic issues. It's a very different and it's very, very devastating. Now, there's something that you fondly call A4, capital A, a4, yes. because it stands for anti-amyloid treatment in asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease. What a mouthful that is. That's why it, and, and that's why it's A4. <laughs> that's why it's A4, because there's just so much time in the day to actually say this in the full name. But to make a long story short, now we're going to hear it from Dr. Ryan herself, there is a new look. At folks who are asymptomatic, they don't have any of the indices of Alzheimer's, but they do have a particular protein uh, that, is, that, that may be the connection. And we're trying to look at an early intervention for Alzheimer's through trials with regard to this protein. So there, there you've got it in the consumer retail version. Now explain to us what A4 is actually all about, Dr. Ryan. Uh, absolutely. So what we've learned over the last uh, decade or so is that while people may not have symptoms, we can start to see the disease pathology um, in a living brain because now we have ways to actually do um, a PET scan, a positron emission tomography scan um, in, a, in a living person, um, and we can actually measure amounts of the protein that you're referring to that we see is abnormally, abnormal levels of this protein. Um, everyone has the protein. It's called beta amyloid, but there are extremely high levels in an Alzheimer's disease. And many think that that leads to other effects um, as the disease progresses and we have, you know, loss of, of neurons, which are, you know, what help us to, uh, us to think. When we lose those, we lose a lot of our, our abilities, and that's why you see the cognitive changes in, um, in Alzheimer's disease. So because we can now image these things and we know that the changes start well before people have symptoms, the idea is if we can intervene, if we can identify people who are at risk for developing dementia, cognitive decline in dementia, if we intervene early, can we slow or stop that progression? And that is what A4 is doing. And it's really the first study in those who have what we call the, the most common form of Alzheimer's is late onset. There's actually 
other forms as an early onset. Some people in their 40s, 50s um, can get it as well. Those tend to be much more rare, tend to run in families, and, and many have genetic mutations. So we're really talking about the common form of Alzheimer's, older adults who are at risk for getting dementia because they have these high levels of amyloid, but they are currently cognitively normal, so they're not showing any symptoms at all. And that's the idea behind the A4 trial. Is they're, And they're treating with, as you talked about, this drug, this anti-amyloid drug that actually tries to clear out, to stop amyloid from building up in the brain. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about a magic word that you said, uh, Dr. Ryan, and that is genetics. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of people uh, assume that if there is Alzheimer's in their family, they may get it and they're frightened, and others assume that if there isn't, they won't. So we will be talking about that connection between genetics and Alzheimer's. And one of the things that Dr. Ryan wanted to be sure everyone knew about, so I want, you to, I want to say it in our first segment but go into it in depth, is that uh, these trials take folks. They take subjects. They require you to be part of the process. And we'll show you how that is possible for you and how many people it really takes uh, to, in order to have a trial that really is of significance. So don't you go anywhere. This is Generation Bowl, the fountain of truth about aging. We will be right back. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da -da -da -da. Da -da -da -da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. And hello, hello, hello once again. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bowl, the Fountain of Truth. Now, we have a couple of little housekeepings. Uh, don't forget that there is a blog associated with this podcast, and it is called Aging for Beginners. You'll find it published by Bottom Line Personal. And we have been uh, hitting out a blog a week. Uh, the latest one has to do with marketing. All the marketing that you are receiving in the light of coronavirus might be what we call piggyback marketing. Folks who are simply using the coronavirus to piggyback on the big story, and what you may be reading in the news is not news, but it is a substitute for advertising. And we show you how to know the difference. Now, that doesn't mean it's something that you shouldn't pay attention to. Some of the private sectors have a lot to help you with, with regard to how to wash your hands. That's fine. But the fact is you should know the difference between news and marketing, and please go to Generation Bold's uh, companion podcast, Aging for Beginners, at uh, Bottom Line Personal. And finally, we have a webcast, not a podcast, but a webcast, coming up on March on <laughs> May 9th. Look where I've been sequestered a little too long on May 9th. And it is called Better Than Normal. And it is what you can do right now to make a difference after coronavirus is over so that you are not going back to normal but are better than normal. Okay, uh, and in order to find out about that, it's very simple. You'll get a free invitation. All you have to do is go to generationboldradio.com and give us your email address and you will get your invitation to our May 9th webcast. Now let's go back to Dr. Lori Ryan. Uh, she's with the National Institute on aging, uh, and 
focusing right now on A4, an amyloid study of a protein that may be the intervention for many of us, not all of us, but many of us when it comes to defeating Alzheimer's disease. And one of the things you said, Dr. Ryan, was the issue of genetics. How mm-hmm. bound up is Alzheimer's with genetics? So that, that's a great question um, because people are, as you said, are worried about it. So what I was referring to earlier was really there are some individuals with the early onset form, again, uh, 40s and 50s onset of, of symptoms, who have known genetic mutations. So we know it's in a family. If you are a carrier of mutation, you are basically 99.9% likely to go on and have the dementia roughly around the same time as your parents started to develop symptoms. So that's a very small group. It's like, you know, 3% or less. Um, what we're talking about, though, here, and what most people are worried about, is the late-onset form um, in older adults. And there, the biggest risk factor for developing Uh, Alzheimer's dementia is actually age. And there are some genetic risks, but they, unlike having a genetic mutation where we know, you know, if you get it, again, you're highly likely, not 100%, but almost 100% likely to get it. It's very different when we're talking about late onset. So people probably have heard about APOE4, positive APOE4. That is the gene that's a risk gene. So if you have two copies of this gene, you are at, the higher, at a higher risk of going on to develop dementia of the Alzheimer's type. However, it doesn't mean you're going to get it. It's a risk factor, but it's not a certainty. It's very different than what I was talking about with the early onset genetic mutations. So it puts you at higher risk. You know, family history puts you at higher risk. There are other things that put you at higher risk, having cardiovascular disease, diabetes. There are many things that can put you at higher risk. So that's one of the factors that puts people at higher risk. But, again, it doesn't mean for certain that you're going to go on to develop dementia. So I think that's important so that, to, to realize. It's, it's very important and it's very comforting. And a lot of this is comforting because we are really focusing on something and we discover when it comes to our diseases, and particularly diseases of aging, when we focus on something, we generally get breakthroughs. So it behooves us all to be part of this. And let, let's take a look at that. Because, Dr. Ryan, one of the things you said was, I want to make sure that you personally want to make sure everybody knows how important it is that they be part of this. So I was stunned by the number of folks that you ran through, we'll say, before you, choose, you chose who you're, uh, who's involved in the study and then how many people are involved in the study. So dazzle us with the numbers and tell us how people can keep up with what you're looking for. Right. So in this case, for A4, the researchers now, it's important to know that we we fund the research and we work closely with them, but it's actually researchers in the field. This this study is led by Dr. Risa Sperling um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And so in order to find the participants that had high levels of amyloid but were cognitively normal, they had to screen an enormous amount of individuals. So almost 7,000 individuals had to be screened. And, you know, there were different levels of screening, so you had to first be cognitively normal, and then we had to look at the PET scan and see if you had high enough levels of amyloid. If you didn't, then you weren't available for the trial. So it took – when you're talking about trials in people who don't have disease like this, pre-symptomatic, you actually need to screen many more people than you do if you are looking at people who have known disease, who have a diagnosis, for example. So when we're looking at prevention – it's actually we have to screen a lot more individuals. So we, we really do need volunteers because, as I was saying to you, we cannot do this. We cannot have breakthroughs 
without the collaboration with the public. We need volunteers who are healthy. We need volunteers who have, have disease and symptoms and family members. And also, not just for clinical trials, but for clinical research in general. So if people don't want to participate in a clinical trial, there are many observational studies that will help us learn about this disease and actually be able to develop treatments and cures, because something you touched on, amyloid is one potential treatment, but there are, are many other targets for treatment because this is a complex disease. It's a syndrome, and there's not one particular pathway. I might have a different pathway to getting the disease than, than you do, for example. My risk factors might be different. And I, I so want we're going to need, I'm sorry, we're going to need personalized medicine. People think about that in the future, about you're going to get, a, you know, combinations of therapies, interventions based on based on your risk. Yeah, we, we have, uh, many years ago, 2007, I wrote a book on money, and it was How Not to Go Broke on 100, at 102. And one of the things that I was able to do was uh, a lot of uh, interviews. And at that time, they were calling drugs designer drugs. But more and more, I'm seeing the individualization of therapies, whether it be drugs, pharmaceuticals, whether it be devices, whether it be a combination of therapies. And I think that the public has to start thinking a little bit differently. Uh, we usually say, well, we're going to take a pill. And we think of one pill, one disease. No. We're getting more sophisticated than that, and that's one of the things that Dr. Ryan is bringing out, uh, because it is complex, and it's not just Alzheimer's, but cancers and everything else. I want to encourage people to uh, take part in tests of all types. I'll tell you a quick story. My father-in-law, who sadly passed away, but he was 94 years old, had a type of cancer, and he, uh, he did participate in trial very early stage. He did get the drug, and the rest is history. Uh, 20, 23 years later, he passed away from, from something else altogether. So, so, Dr. Ryan, how are people likely to find out about trials and um, clinical, non-clinical trials and participate? Oh, a another excellent question. So, you know, the government has a, we, the federal government, have something called clinicaltrials.gov, and certainly you can go there. I, I think sometimes that site is, is a little intimidating. You have to sort of know what you're looking for and put in to do a search. But we at the NIA actually also have a web page on clinical trials, of course, focused for diseases of aging, right? And we have ones devoted to Alzheimer's and related dementia. So that's a great website. Um, we also have a, a, an 800 number that people can dial if they want to get information. Another good source uh, actually is the Alzheimer's Association, but their, their international, their, their website, which is national, has, also has information. It has something called Trial Match, where they also will show you what trials are available for what you're looking for. And, um, you know, your local um, Alzheimer's Association chapter also can be helpful. So I think I would recommend, you know, the NIA website as well as the Alzheimer's Association website if you want to learn about what trials are available um, near you. And thank you. This is so important, significant information. And, by the way, I'm going to have this on our, uh, on our podcaster as well on our website because it is very, very important that you know about this. You may not have had an opportunity to write it down. So all you have to do is go to generationboldradio.com and take a look at this show, which will be archived as always, and give us your email address, and you'll get all of this information as well. And we'll be right back. Don't you guys go anywhere. We're going to be talking about things you can do at home to fight the possibility of Alzheimer's and other age-related diseases. Don't go anywhere.
may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, cause I am happy, and I freely admit, I'm inappropriate for my age, da 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 da, da 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 da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, cause I am happy. And hello, hello, hello. We're speaking today on Generation Bold, the fountain of truth about aging. Uh, with me, your host, Adrian Berg, uh, with Dr. Lori Ryan. She's chief of the uh, Dementias of Aging branch in the Division of Neuroscience at the National Institute of Aging, which is part of the, Interna- uh, the National uh, Institute of Health here in the United States. Now, recently I've been working with, uh, and I'm, I'm saying this to, to my listeners, but also to you, Dr. Ryan, I've recently been working with folks over at the UK. In the United Kingdom, they actually have a government policy, they call the five-year plan, to defeat issues of aging that are age-related. And it's working. I mean, there is an amazing amount of money, I'll be honest with you, and research going into specifically diseases of aging. Why? Because we are living longer. Even folks with Alzheimer's are living longer. But we are not necessarily living healthier, and that's the key. Now, part of what's going on in the U.K., is uh, a re-education, let's call it, of the public on their own behaviors about eating, about exercise, about uh, you know brain games, everything you can think of. And that's happening here too. Uh, I was very, very gratified and, and pretty excited when I read that of the 230 clinical trials with regard to Alzheimer's, a number of them are focused on non-pharmacological interventions, no pills, things that we can do. And, and, and I'm very curious about this. Uh, I don't understand quite how the trials go with regard to what we should be eating and how we should be exercising and training our, ourselves for, for better cognition. What do those trials look like? I know that you, you've worked with them in the past. And tell us, you can enlighten us about that. Absolutely. So, you know, in addition to, as you said, the pharmacologic interventions, we're looking at non-pharmacologic. Many of them are lifestyle interventions. You just pointed out diet, exercise, uh, cognitive training. Um, Also things looking at social isolation because people who are socially isolated, that's also a risk factor for developing dementia. So what they do here, these are actually, in, in many ways, more more complicated than doing a standard pharmacological intervention where you have, you know, basically you have a an active treatment you know, pill, and you have, you know, we call them sugar pills or placebos. We still have to randomize people, though, because that's important. I mean, randomization means you come in and we're going to assign you randomly to one of two groups because we want to know what happens, you know, if you don't know exactly what your intervention is and neither does the um, actual the, uh, the physician, right? In this case, with a, obviously exercise, you're going to say, well, I know I'm exercising. That's true. But what we often do is we'll have you know, a group that will have a high-intensity exercise and one that might just have like stretching. And the people that are doing the ratings will not know which group the individual is in, for example. So they're a little more complicated, but we still need to have that randomization. We still need to have the ability to, to blind people to exactly what their treatment is only because 
if you know, that can actually influence how you behave, right? So, and that also can influence the doctors who are actually taking, doing the testing to see, you know, if it's having an impact. So we have to ha have as much blinding as we have, as we can. It's a little more difficult with non-pharmacologic, but it can be done. Like I was just explaining to you with the high intensity exercise, maybe versus someone who's just getting stretching or with diet, you know, people are getting advice about diet versus people who are actually getting a prescribed diet, for example. That's how they're, that's how they're done. It's very interesting because when you read about trials, clinical trials, you see words that you don't understand, words like double blind. Well, now right. we know what that means. Nobody That's knows right. That, when we say double, God. we mean both the participant and the, um, the tester, the physician actually running the study. They don't know which, what your assignment is. And in that case, again, and the whole reason for that is mostly our human nature that, as Dr. Ryan uh, says, we may change our behavior if we know uh, how, how all this is supposed to be working. So, so now let's get to, to what I want to do. I do want to change people's behavior. I want people to say, well, drink, look at this. The NIH says we should be dieting and eating a lot of fruit, so I'm going to go out and eat a lot of fruit. Let's talk about that for a minute. What is the real-life translation? Of the um, of the non-pharmacological interventions. For example, again, I live in the world of translation of drugs. I know it goes through the FDA, and all of a sudden, right. my doctor prescribes it for me. But this right. is different. This is different. How do we translate those findings of exercise, cognitive fitness, to real life for people? Because I think you know, as as I think people have known for a long time that you know, eating healthy. Um, exercising is important. We've known that it helps heart cardiovascular health. We know it helps brain health, just even from observational studies. What's important about doing the trials, though, is it's going to tell us how much, you know, might be helpful, how often it might be helpful. So those are things that you can't answer just by, by observational studies. But what we are hoping, obviously, is when we have the studies report out, that then it will be much more like a prescription because you can say to a physician, you know, the study shows that you know, having this amount of exercise, for example, is beneficial. And I know we have a trial that's not enrolling any more participants called the EXERT trial. It's one of the largest exercise studies. It's actually in people who have mild cognitive impairment, which um, you may be aware is a risk factor for going on to develop dementia. So these are people who have cognitive changes, cognitive decline, but they're not, they don't have dementia, and it doesn't mean they're going to get dementia. Again, it's one of these risk factors. You're at much higher risk, though, if you have MCI, as we call it, um, than if you don't. So the idea here with the EXERT trial is, hey, if we go in and we, again, have people doing intense aerobic exercise, you know, will that help delay their symptom progression? And they're actually doing it in the community. They're doing it at the local YMCAs using YMCA trainers. So this will be very translatable and ultimately, hopefully, you know, the, the, well, the person who actually is the, the lead investigator on that study who developed it, Dr. Laura Baker at Wake Forest, you know, that's her idea is, like, we could then prescribe, you know, that you can say, hey, we can you know, prescribe. I, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait for that to happen because yeah. people are not. No, no, I'm just, uh, but, that's, but that's the idea between that's why you still need the studies, even though we know these things are beneficial. So we do want to get people to change their behavior, but when we have the data behind it, it actually makes it even more helpful, but clearly we know that healthy lifestyles are helpful for aging and for diseases of aging. Yeah, and we're working more and more, and, and even shows like this and, and my blog are working more and more to convince people that this is true, that you will live longer, live healthier, 
feel better, probably make more money because you're able to be in the workforce longer, uh, take better care of your family if you have a degree of self-care. And unfortunately, behavioral changes are not easy. We've got, uh, not in Alzheimer's, but in, in diabetes, we're pretty much close to what you're talking about. When you go for a diabetes consultation after you've been diagnosed, you do get uh, from your counselor the right way to eat, the exercises, and so on. And then it, it sometimes falls into a black hole. It is a problem. But if we attack it from every point of view, including a true prescription from an authoritative figure like a doctor, translating what you're finding in the clinical trials to what we might call our medicine chest, put our exercise program into the medicine chest, we may do it because we do take our medications. So uh, all of this is of one piece and very, very holistic. And I think that all the doctors, including Dr. Ryan and, 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 the, and your own treating physician and our own selves, are understanding the holistic aspect of lifelong health and continued longevity. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about something else altogether. And this is something that is, look, we're the fountain of truth. We're going to be talking about money and who's funding this, how much of funding is really necessary, and what happens if you do have a loved one that has Alzheimer's. What is going to be the cost of care and what is the NIH doing right now to ameliorate some of the situation for the folks who already have the diagnosis? Don't you go anywhere. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. A little bit of housekeeping. On uh, the 9th of May, and that is coming right up on a Saturday, we'll be doing a webcast. Very, very unusual because we're usually doing podcasts. This is called Better Than Normal, How to Live a Life Filled with Gusto in the Wake of Coronavirus, and we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about money, we'll be talking about health, and we'll be talking about life purpose. Very, very interesting, uh, and we have a wonderful sponsor for that, and that sponsor is a Strategic Retirement. So uh, if you would like your free uh, invitation to the webinar, just go to our website, Generation Bold Radio, generationboldradio.com, and give me your email address, and you will get not only the invitation, but every single Monday we have a free newsletter with hints and tips on successful aging, repeats and reprints of our blogs, our podcasts, and new information about our guests because they're always moving, doing wonderful things. So right now let's get back to our guest, Dr. Lori Ryan, and she is um, one of the, the leaders in the field of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's research. She's chief of the uh, Dimensions of Aging branch in the Division of Neuroscience at the National Institute on Aging, part of the National Institute of Health on Health. And we've been talking about an amyloid study, an A4 study. 
looking uh, at folks who do not have Alzheimer's or any symptomology, but do have a particular protein in the brain to see whether or not there can be interventions before people actually have Alzheimer's. But one of the things that Dr. Ryan wanted to point out, make sure that I, I gave her a chance to discuss, is what, what the NIA is doing for folks that already have the disease. So let's talk about that first, and then we're going to talk about something very, uh, I guess it makes me angry, and that is the issue of how expensive it can be when you have a chronic disease and it's not really covered. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, from a health point of view, clinical point of view, what's happening at the NIA with regard to folks that do have Alzheimer's? Yes, I think that's important to realize as well. We really do want to, obviously, we want to prevent people getting dementia for sure, and that's an important area of research. We still need to, you know, deal with folks who actually have the symptoms, who have the disease, who might have, as I talked about, mild cognitive impairment or actually dementia. And so many trials are actually going on that are looking at treatments for individuals who already have the disease, as well as trying to prevent the disease. So that's what's very important to know. I believe I talked about the EXERT study. Even some of the non-pharmacological intervention studies can be in people who have, you know, again, mild cognitive impairment, you don't have Alzheimer's yet, but you're at very high risk and you already have cognitive symptoms, um, can we intervene and can we slow that progression? So that is, as you point out, their qu quality of life, you know, is better, is improved if we can keep people, you know, at a higher level of functioning. So it's very important to know that it's not just focused on prevention, but also doing treatments for people who have disease and hopefully um, slowing that progression or even, you know, and some studies are looking at can they actually even reverse some of the symptoms? Can they, can they make cognition better? So that's important. I just wanted everybody to be aware that it's a full range of research um, on the treatment and prevention of Alzheimer's and related dementias. And I wanted to mention uh, that if I've learned anything as a layman from listening to top uh, doctors like yourself and top researchers like yourself, it's that we're all on a spectrum. And even, even folks with Alzheimer's are on a spectrum. And I've been able to see people who could not uh, communicate begin to talk and to eat uh, in, in community. And I've seen music therapies and, and spiritual therapies work to bring people back to who they were to a certain degree. So as I say, we're, we're all on a spectrum, and these are really significant, significant help for folks who are the caregivers. They have to know that these things are available to them. So many times we will have share the care or Dr. Uh, uh, and he's also a reverend, Greg Johnson on our show, care for the caregiver. But it's very expensive, uh, some of the self-care that isn't pharmacological. Most of that is covered, your doctor's visits, your medications. But the ability to change somebody's clothes or bathe them, that's different. So I do, I do want you to know that one of my missions is to make sure that you can afford to have the time for your own self-care as well as for the person that you're caring for. And you can take a look at uh, my latest book, which is uh, The Retirement Income Explosion. And it sounds like an investing book, but actually it has a number, a number of chapters on where you can get money locally, not necessarily from the federal government, and how you can pay for some of these things, and very, very much the importance of your own self-care. Okay, so, so let's go back. Uh, I had mentioned the issue of money to you during our break, Dr. Ryan, and you said, well, you know what, we don't really take care of that here 
and we don't take care of changes in behavior either. But the NIH does. So tell us a little bit about what else is going on that you may not be as directly involved with that really does relate to this holistic subject. Right. So I think, as we were discussing, so um, how to make care more efficient, how to make it better, um, you know, whether it be care, self-care for the caregivers or the, the, or the caregiver and the patient or the person, rather, with Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. So there is research going on to how, those, how care management can be improved as well. So, and, and also science of how you can actually get people to engage, you know, to change behavior. So those, those things are going on. We have a, a sister division at the National Institute on Aging called uh, Division of be- Behavioral and Social Research, and they actually do much of that research. So there is work, work going on again. So what I was talking about is that we're, at NIH, we are a research institute, and so we're totally Totally focused on the research, but it is also important when we're looking at research for for dementia is, is about care and how to make care better and more efficient. Now, one of the things that I want everybody to know is that this is all your show. Uh, the reason that we have Dr. Ryan here is we've been asked. We've been asked to have more and more shows on this issue of Alzheimer's and what's really going on and what's behind the scenes. And we do take you behind the scenes. So. For those of you who want uh, archives of our shows, if you want to have a heads up on what the latest blogs are that we're involved with, research, I've just added something new called uh, In My Inbox. I get so many wonderful things people would like to be on the show, but for one reason or another, there's just no time for them to be on the show. But they're very worthwhile resources for you, and I have included that every single Monday. Uh, and we've repeated it now on Wednesdays because people say, send it twice, sometimes we miss it. Uh, all you have to do to get our free newsletter or our free blog, Aging for Beginners, or the archives from our podcast is go to generationboldradio.com. Let us know you're there. You'll see a little space there where you can put in your email address. Or go to my website, adrianberg.com. Very simple, adrianberg.com. And you will see on Contact Adrian, yes, I would like to get your free newsletter. And that is at Contact Adrian. Just all we need is your email address, no other questions asked. We are very, very happy to serve you. Our mission is that everybody have a kick-ass old age. And Dr. Ryan, you are certainly one of the people (laughs) that's helping fulfill that mission. So we thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. These are really important topics, and very glad to be here. This is wonderful. And for everybody else, I know that you're sequestered, and I know that you may have heard Dr. Ryan say that loneliness or isolation is one of these uh, environmental issues that uh, is really no good for our brain. It's no good. And so make sure that during this sequestration period, you get out there with technology and Make sure that you are communicating as much as you possibly can. And otherwise, I usually say get out there, kids, and make it happen. I'm going to say that again because maybe by the time you hear this show, it will all be uh, over and you will be able to get out there. So get out there, kids, and make it happen. I'm inappropriate.